Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Jake Wiley here with me today, and if you'd like to follow along, head over to his website, thelimitedpartner.com, and I'll make sure to have that as a clickable link in the show note, but Jake, really appreciate your time here today as we talk about syndications and how to get into real estate investing more on the passive side. You've heard me talking for years here now how real estate investing is a very active investment strategy. But Jake, I'd be curious as to how you found your way to the passive side, the syndication side, and how you're helping investors make it more of a passive investment strategy. Yeah. Thank you, one, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. This is a really interesting time in the real estate market. The dynamics are changing very rapidly. And I think some of the things that led into COVID and probably some of the fears that we had of investing in real estate subsided and became very aggressive market. And now we're seeing it unravel a little bit. So it's an exciting time to be a real estate investor. It's definitely in a very important time to be a well-educated investor and kind of know what you're doing. But going back in time, let's talk about how I found my way to some more of the passive side of investing is that we'll probably cover this later in the show, but there's a thought that when you get into real estate investing, that it is a passive activity. You go out there and you buy a rental property, you put a great tenant in there, and then every month they send you money, you get depreciation, you get this cash flow, and like you, your world just continues to grow and it's all sunshine and roses. And the reality is that it doesn't work that way. And but what I like to say a lot of times is that when you put a tenant in a property and something's going to go wrong, it goes wrong at the worst possible time for one, you as a person, and then two, for the property itself. So air conditioners don't break in spring or fall when the temperatures are nice. They break when it's been 100 degrees for the past week. Think about what's going on in Texas right now. And roofs don't leak, you know, when it's nice outside. It leaks when it's absolutely storming. And, you know, mm -hmm. these are the things and these are the areas where like you as the owner of a property, if, even if you have a property manager, now I can tell, talk about that a little bit more if you want to, are ultimately responsible. You're trying to protect your asset, trying to protect your tenant, you're trying to protect your revenue stream. And these things happen and they pop up and you've got to be, you've got to jump and you've got to go deal with it. And you've got to spend a lot of time doing it. So the thought for me was like, I'm going to get into it to real estate because it's passive. I was luckily, fortunately for me, I, I worked in a position when I first got out of school as a CPA, worked for a large accounting firm and they had all these restrictions on what you could and could not invest in, especially in stocks. So I was forced, yeah, I was pushed into real estate because nobody can tell me I can't buy that house right next door to mine and rent it out. So real estate was great. You probably heard it a million times. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I was like, this is exactly what I want. And I did it. I took action. I think that's one step number one for most of you guys out there looking at real estate. Go do something. You'll learn a lot through just activity. But I invested. I got into these properties. I had properties in over five different states. We moved around a lot and I would buy a property, then we'd move. And then I'd have these kind of legacy properties that I had to deal with. And over time, I got to a point where I was at capacity, right? There's, I really couldn't take on any more. One, you get to a point where 
from a loan perspective, it's very hard to get that next loan because the agencies will only take so many on your personal social security number. I think that's gone up now, which is great, but that was hard Two, like how much time I was, it was taking out of my life. And like I said, it never happens at opportune times. It's not, Hey, I'm, I've got nothing to do this week and I'll deal with all of my real estate problems this week. They, they pop tenants for some reason, only call you on Sunday when it's raining or it's 150 degrees outside and it's an emergency call to get somebody else out there. And I was at capacity. I was like, I can't take on any more. This is not the empire that I expected. And there's probably a bunch of you out there that are saying, Jake, that's what property managers are for. And I will tell you this is that in the onesie twosie world of real estate investing, having a property manager, most of the time they, one, collect the rents for you. And then they call you after the tenant calls them and says, hey, we got a problem. And then it's really on you. Hey, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to send our super, super duper expensive guy out there who's going to charge you an arm and a leg? Or do you want to go handle this or what? Like, you got to make these decisions. But at the end of the day, like if it's leaking, your roof is leaking and it's raining, you got to go out there and protect your asset. You got to, whatever you got to do to do that. Their conditioner is out and it's 110 degrees. You got to figure out a way to keep these tenants happy or put them in a hotel, whatever. And I was done. I was like, I can't take on any more of these. And I really started spending some time trying to figure out like, well, how do you do this? And I just had this epiphany one day that like one in my career, I work with private equity companies all the time. And I've worked with large real estate owners, which is really synonymous in the private equity world is that they make these investments. And none of these guys that are sitting at the top of these funds are worried about that. That's not what they're dealing with. They're, we're, they're doing bigger deals. And then I was like, okay, this all still makes sense. If you do bigger deals, then there's scale, right? So let's make a really simple analogy to multifamily is that a good example is when you get to a hundred doors, you can usually have on-site property management, right? So you've got budgets for things that go bad. Water heaters are going to go out. Air conditioners are going to go out. The roof is going to leak. All these things happen. You've got on-site property management. You've got a budget set aside. So like when these things happen, this natural order of activities take care of it. So it's like, that's great. I want to be at scale, but like, how do you go from investing in like a, a single family or maybe like a duplex to like most people's thoughts is like, well, let's just move to a quad and you work your way up, but you really have to make this big leap to get out to scale. And it's really hard to do that on your own. So I found, or really already knew about this. And it was one of those no doubt moments. I'm sitting here talking to these people all the time is that there's syndications. You put these deals together and there's a bunch of investors that get pooled together and you have one or two key people that are running this and they're responsible for operating the entire process and they're experts and this is what they do and this is how they make their money and that they are not the property managers, right? They may have property managers underneath them, but their objective is to build a plan and operate the plan. And then me, I would come in as basically, I could do it one of two ways. One, I could either be the syndicator, the guy that's on top, putting this whole thing together, or I could just come in passively and just be an investor. I put a little bit of money in and I've got a little equity stake in this larger property that's already doing all of these things. And I'm just, I, I literally now am just collecting cash flow. So that's, that was the epiphany that I had and the, the, the world that I finally saw that was staring me right in the face. And I've been transitioning out of all of these single families. I've still got a couple, I've got a couple of vacation rentals that I really, from a cash flow perspective, but I no longer feel that over, overarching stress that I'm like completely a capacity. And I've, I have not solved my issue, right? Is to create passive income that allows me to do what I want for the rest of my life. 
And that's where syndications come in. And the, the other thing that I realized, if like, I don't fully appreciate, and I'm saying I'm in this business, I do these things day to day with folks, then there's a lot of folks out there that are like me that have gotten pulled into this real estate investing world, but have never really appreciated that like they could also invest like a billionaire in a syndication passively with people that are actually better operators than they are and have the time and the wherewithal to make these things run efficiently. So that's my kind of backstory and where syndications came from in the limited partner podcast is an education story about how to get in, how to do these things in a lot more detail. And we talk to folks that are doing it every day and navigating the current market and how that works. Sure. Just to remind everybody, it's thelimitedpartner.com to find more information about Jake and his podcast. Could you spend a little time then talking a little bit about that those initial questions about how do you find the right syndication? What questions should they be asking and make sure it's a right fit and ensuring that those people actually know what they're doing. Yeah, I think that's, that is what's most, let's go back in time. 10 years ago, between 10 years ago and about a year ago, you really would have had to worked hard to screw something up in this syndication. The whole, the tides are rising. So all the boats were going up and there's a lot of folks that have jumped in this game that have never been through a cycle. We're in a cycle now, which means that we've gotten to the top and things are adjusting. They're coming back down and we don't know how fast. We don't know where interest rates are going. Just today, the Fed announced that they're not done raising interest rates and that's going to have a massive impact. So what's really most important is finding the right partner to work with. And that it's going to take work. So we talk about being passive. This is not akin to you work for a company, there's a 401k and they give you a menu of pick a couple of these items and that's your investment profile. You actually are going to have to do some work here and you're going to have to go out and meet people. A lot of it can be done virtually, but eventually, like I'm suggesting at a minimum, you're doing a Zoom call face-to-face with somebody and you're talking through what is their strategy? What are they doing? But you need to work with somebody that's got experience. And then it gets into, there's, that's the syndicator, that's the GP, that's high level. You want to find somebody that's got a lot of experience. And then there's the asset itself. So what asset are they investing in? Do they know that particular asset? Because a lot of people have pivoted in this past year because the asset that they are used to working with is not returning what it used to. And therefore they're trying to find something new. Do they even understand that? Yes, it all seems very similar. But you want to know, do you have experience operating? For example, if somebody was in multifamily and they're like, oh, we've just got this brand new self-storage fund and self-storage is great because it's a transitional asset. Like when people are moving up, they need storage. When people are moving down, like in a recession, everybody will tell you self-storage is great. But it's okay. You have experience running self-storage because it's like a business in and of itself. And it's not the same as multifamily. And leases are month to month. Like you don't have this long terms. Like, can you manage that? And then you've got the market, right? So there's micro markets all over the country. So there's the U.S., then there's states, then there's cities. And then within cities, like you all know this, you've looked, if you've ever looked at real estate, you cross the train tracks and it's a completely different market. So where are you investing in? And those are the three things that are really important to me. And the initial kind of screen is I call it the MSA model, right? So do you know your market? Who's the syndicator and what's the asset? So you as a passive investor that want to jump into this game, those are the three things that you need to feel very good about and not, none of those can be omitted. There's not one that's better than the other with the exception of finding the right sponsor. And you need somebody that's got a track record 
And ideally, you'd have somebody that's actually been through a cycle. And they're harder to find now because it's, it's been over a decade. But you need to find somebody that's been through the trenches, been through the mud. You want to ask questions about, okay, give me an example of when an investment didn't go to plan. How did you handle that? Are they communicating? Like, what happened to the investment? All of those things. And you want a good story. And you want to, you want to see some pain in the process to understand that you've got somebody that's mature enough that will work through it with you because everything has its peaks and valleys and every month is not going to be perfect and things happen. You as an investor want to be well communicated with and you want to understand what's happening so you're not surprised because we all have a tendency to assume the worst if people aren't talking to us. So know your sponsor, know how they communicate. Then you want to know the asset class that you're investing in and then the market. You mentioned it's important to have a face-to-face -face meeting, even if it's on Zoom. Have you found that, why, why is it the need to point that out? I think you really need to understand who you're working with and you need somebody that's willing to spend the time with you, to interact with you one-on-one, -on -one, to know, because when the chips are down, you need to know that they're going to do that for you as well. And I think that's so important that you know who you're working with, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues where you've got syndicators that have grown really large and they've gone three levels down. Who are you going to be communicating with? Who's going to be answering your questions? And if they're like, oh, we're, we're too busy, either take it or leave it, leave it. It's not worth it. And you will find, and, and I've interviewed probably nearly 80 syndicators on the limited partner podcast at this point. You will find that the best, the most experienced, the ones that have done the most deals will tell you over and over again that they expect that from their investors, especially in the beginning. They want you to get in there. They want you to ask questions because here's the flip side of the point is that if you don't ask questions before you get involved with somebody, you're a risk to them, right? Because you, when you put your money in one of these syndications, this is not like the stock market. It's not, your capital is not liquid. You're locked up three, five, seven years, maybe longer, depending on the market cycle when you're supposed to exit. And if you start asking questions after you put your money in, like you're a big issue for that syndicator and they want to know that you're a good partner for them as well. But I think once you have that face-to-face -face interaction with somebody, you'll know, do they communicate well with you? Are they just trying to do another deal or do they actually want to get to know you as an investor? And if you can check those boxes off, you're going to be in a good spot. But it's really hard to do that over email. And it's really hard to do that without looking somebody in the eye, even if it's virtually. The reason I bring this up is because it seems as a society, we, when it comes to any kind of investing, we're taught to set it and forget it. So it's important for me to point out the fact that you're talking, even in this passive infrastructure and passive investment strategy, that you're advising that there is going to be some activity. You have to take some level of action. You have to ask some level of questions to truly understand your investment, unlike blindly throwing money into a Roth IRA or something. Yeah, I, I cannot emphasize that enough, right? When you think about where this money came from, and this is how I try and articulate that, how many years have you been working to create this investment pool that you're going to go put to work? And the fact that there's a lot of people and there's a lot of people, I'm talking probably the majority of people will basically blindly write a check and give it to somebody that's got a nice story. And I will tell you that the people that, all, that have the nicest marketing and the slickest answers are not necessarily the right people to invest with because they spend all their money on the marketing 
and not so operating their business. And you'll know that, but you have to take the time to understand who you're working with, what they're doing. And there's a million assumptions that goes into these models and like, just give you a high level of cap rate. So that's a rate that they use to determine value in commercial properties. Fractions of a percentage point in a cap rate change in a model and an assumption year over year can have a significant value impact to what they're projecting this thing is going to return over time. And if you don't understand, how are you modeling that? Do you think the cap rates are going to go down, which means higher value, or do you think they're going to go up? But it, like looking at the current market, current mic micro market that we're in today, I would expect that cap rates are going to continue to go up. So if I see an investment that has somebody that's either holding it flat or making a marginal change down over time, like that would worry me. But you have to ask those questions and you have to know like what you're getting into and understanding like how they're evaluating those things. And when you talk to somebody and you really talk to them and understand what their strategy is, you should feel very comfortable with their plan, the market, and how they're going to communicate as things happen over the life of the investment because they will. So you mentioned this current market condition. Have you seen any trends or any changes in the marketplace, especially regarding syndicators? Yeah, I would say, so there, there's a couple of things that are really important to note, right? So one of the dirty little secrets of syndicating is that the syndicator and general partner really don't make the bulk of their money until they exit, right? And the cash flows that are coming into the syndicators from a monthly basis, usually in the model, most of that's going out to the limited partner. So you're thinking, well, that's great. But what it also does is it puts pressure on the syndicator themselves to go do another deal because there's acquisition fees at the beginning of a deal that kind of helps prop everything up. So if you have a syndicator that's relatively new in the market and they've been pricing deals in the past couple of years, the cash flows are razor thin, razor thin. And there's not leaving them a lot of room to actually run their business. So if you see a syndicator that's out there just like promoting deals after deal right now, I would actually say that's a red flag for me because the market is changing very fast and cap rates, like I said, are going up. Values are coming down. Banks aren't lending. Interest rates are going up. There's a lot of stress in the marketplace. And it's not, right now is not like the rainbows and sunshine moment of real estate where you can't screw it up. It's very easy to mess this up right now. And if you're seeing messages out there about like how great it is a time to invest, like it is, if you know what you're doing. So the trend is that the values are coming down and we've got this behemoth of an issue that's out there, which is the office sector. And I'll digress on this a little bit. I'm not recommending anybody's investing in office and there are like very small micro markets where you can get in the office and it makes sense. But 30 to 40% of the office stock that's out there is effectively obsolete at this point. And it's being artificially propped up by the fact that office leases were typically five, seven, 10 years in length. So a lot of the stuff that happened right before coincident with the pandemic, they're still being leased. And therefore, like the owners of those assets are still showing cash flow, but they're empty. And nobody wants to go back into an eight foot ceiling building that was built in the 70s with poor ventilation. Like it's not happening. And therefore, those the impact of all of that inventory, like if you read stories about San Francisco, like they've, they're an acute issue of this, but the impact of all that inventory coming back to the market, which means that when these laces finally expire, the returns on those are going to be zero. 
right? The equity is going to be wiped out. There's going to be banks that are taking this back. And we've already seen bank failures related to buying treasury bonds. If you'd have told me banks would be failing because they own treasury bonds, I would have said, you're crazy. Real estate? Sure. We've got loans that are going to come due. Banks are going to own properties. Valuations are going to plummet in the office sector, and that's going to have a trickle effect over to the other asset classes because banks, we're already seeing it, are not lending as much as they used to. Values are coming down. We don't know exactly where it's going to go. But the fundamentals underlying both self-storage, multifamily, industrial especially, are still very strong. There's demand there. But the debt issues in the commercial sector are very acute and very pointed right now. And the office piece is going to pull it down even further. And we haven't even really started to see that happen yet in a widespread scale. So when we talk about trends, that's something that you need to be aware of is if you're investing in a passive investment, let's just put office to the side. You're not doing that, which again, like maybe you find somebody that has a strategy that works, but it's multifamily. Are they using bridge loans, which could have this floating interest rate? The Fed just announced that they're not done raising rates, which we all thought they were. So that's going to have an impact like when those loans are coming due. There's a lot of real estate, commercial real estate, multifamily real estate that is cash flowing right now that's going to have debt coming due that's not going to be, the banks aren't going to take it again, right? They're going to say, we're not going to adjust it. Like you got to do it. There's going to be distress in the market. So if you're investing in something, you want to know that they've got something that's three or five, seven years in length are like locked in and debt on that property so that you can weather this So those are the things that I'd be watching for is that the adjustment to the rates is not done. Market valuations are going to be coming down. And then we've got this like cliffhanger over here of the office that hasn't even fully trickled into the market yet. That's interesting you bring up that office space because I've been wondering about that as well. What do you think is going to happen to that office space or is there any other use for it? It's a really fascinating question. And if you spend, I don't know, 10 minutes Googling it, you will see office conversions, right? So conversions to, and pick your topic, multifamily, right? Self-storage, any of these other asset classes. And this is what's really fascinating to me is that nobody really talks about the fact that for the longest time, office space has been the darling of institutional investors, right? It's, it's always occupied. There's never enough. And that's not always the case, but the rates are the length of the leases being seven, 10 years in length, like it just adds so much comfort to the office market. The, the valuations per square foot of office have traditionally always been higher than all of the other asset, all the other assets. So what does that mean? So let's take an office that was acquired in 2018, right? So the peak of probably the market for that particular asset. 2019 comes, 2020, the pandemic comes. They, they, like Nobody's back in that office anymore. It was built in the 60s. They don't want to be there. The valuation on that thing is higher than multifamily. It's on the books at higher than what a multifamily class A property would probably be today. So how are you going to convert that, right? What investor is going to go in there and say, I'll buy this old vacant office building. I'll take it off your hands at par, like whatever you've got on your books for it. It's not possible. The valuations that we're going to have to come down to 20% so you can gut it because you think about a typical office structure, that's not exactly how a multifamily is laid out. You got plumbing, you got electrical, you got walls, all of these things that have to be factored in. So that's like a, basically a full gut, a renovation. How much is that going to cost? I don't know, 80%. Let's just pick a number. There's got to be these valuations are on these old, basically obsolete offices have got to be so low to actually get to the conversion aspect because 
what are you going to convert it to? And that is what's really a big challenge is that the people are raising funds to convert office buildings. The real estate's there. And the beauty of real estate is that it's scarce, right? You can never make any more. Let's talk about like downtown Manhattan. The value is there in the real estate, but the building that's sitting on top of that real estate is now obsolete. So those values are going to have to come way down for somebody to convert it, or they're going to have to start over. So these buildings are going to come down and skylines are going to change. It's an exciting time to be in real estate because there's going to be so much change. But who's going to take the hit on all that valuation? One, we know that the equity is wiped out, right? So if you invested in this office in 2018, your equity is gone. So the general partners probably, there's no more sense in me spending any time, hand the bank, hand the keys back to the bank. Now the bank owns this office building and banks aren't are really allowed to own real estate. Like they can have some in their portfolio, but when it gets over a certain ratio, they have to get rid of it. So they're going to liquidate it at whatever price it is. And that's going to reset the value of the entire office stock. So I think we're going to see a massive hit in valuations. There's going to be a massive hit to these banks. And I think that the government's going to have to step in and say, well, we're going to have to figure out how to backstop this because it's such, it's going to be so significant. And that's going to be interesting because like a decrease in value of treasury bonds took out Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank followed shortly thereafter. A lot of these regional banks are highly exposed and are the primary lenders on a lot of these commercial assets. And that's still to come. You mentioned earlier on how to pick a syndication. You should ask them about their lows and how they handled it. Can you share one of your lows and how you handled it and what lessons you learned from it? Yes. So I'm going to go back in time. And I think that this is an interesting story about getting excited. So right after Hurricane Katrina, so Katrina hit in 2005, 2007, my wife and I moved to New Orleans for other business reasons, but they had programs in place in New Orleans to try and get all these residents that had left the market to come back. And it was basically a section eight type program, right? So the government was essentially just writing the checks and the checks would show up in your bank account every month and it was guaranteed money. And we got into some multifamily deals based off of this program because they're like, this is amazing. And I'll just throw numbers out there so you understand what I'm talking about. You could get a rental property like per door and they would pay you $2,500 for a three bedroom, right? So if you had three bedrooms, you get $2,500 maybe the note on that property was a thousand to 1200 bucks, right? That was a unbelievable opportunity. And it was like one of those, Hey, right place, right time. We're here. And we were fully embedded in the real estate community there. And we thought we understood everything, but what we didn't understand was that the program had a sunset on, right? So they were pushing all of these people and they were trying to get these in investors and landlords, like, let's rehab these properties. Let's get people back. Like we will support you from the government perspective. And everybody talked about it like it was section eight. So section eight is perpetual, right? Like as long as people qualify, they get it. They never, it was always, this is the name of the program, but this is what it's right. So you're like, oh, okay, so great. So we ended up with a bunch of multifamily property that had these tenants in. And one day we get a note from the basically the housing authority and said, okay, the set, the program is sunsetting. So just letting you know, like in two months, like that'll be the last check you get from us. So then now you need to go get your money from the tenants. A lot of these people would move back to the city and had no, <laughs> they had no income or they weren't ready for it yet. And long story short is that we, we did not spend enough time to fully understand what we were getting into. 
we made an investment based off of like this moment in time of this hype and this excitement and the opportunity was there for us, right? There were, the real estate was there because they were just thankful that anybody was buying property at that point in time. This program was there and it was going to be this great cash flow thing. We just didn't understand it. So it took us years to adjust that property because all of a sudden we had to get into a market rate, which honestly, like once they sunset that program and the whole, all the market rates fell out, that $2,500 that we thought we were getting probably settled in closer to 800. So now we're upside down on this. And that was a challenge. And it was relatively small. Like we weren't in like to the point where like we couldn't make it work, but it was a life lesson to never jump into something without fully understanding. And then two, if you're looking at a, a deal that has financial incentives attached to it, you got to understand every piece of what drives those incentives, when the dates end, like how that's going to work. And like, we were just excited. We thought, hey, we're on easy street. So that was the lesson learned is that you got to spend some time, right? Don't get sucked into the hype. This deal, the deal of the lifetime, which everybody thinks you hear about it, I'll never see this again. There's another one around the corner. Be patient and understand what you're getting into before you, you shell out your hard earned money. Because I found myself in a situation where I was subsidizing people that could care less about my property for years and lesson learned. And I'm glad it happened. But I'll talk about, I think these gray hairs that you see, like that's where that came from. <laughs> yeah. We all have some gray or a loss of hair altogether. So yeah, Jake, this has been a great conversation. I want to remind everybody one more time, the limited partner.com check out the website and the podcast. But if you're ready, Jake, we'll close things out with some rapid fire questions. Absolutely. Here's your chance to bust a real estate investing myth. What, uh, what one myth drives you a little crazy? I think look, we talked about this earlier in the show, but that real estate investing, especially if you own your own properties is passive, it is not passive and it is a lot of work and it's not convenient. So don't get into it thinking that this is going to be this nice side flow cash flow game that you're going to get yourself into. It's, it's not worth it. And you'll find that you're working for peanuts, right? When you actually calculate your money. I can't, I can't agree enough. And we could spend a whole other episode on this, but between single family rentals and how little you actually get there is a hard lesson to learn. And then finding a property manager where your interests are aligned, that's almost a unicorn. It is. But it is very hard. What book would you recommend? So for those of you that are out there that are interested in potentially becoming a limited partner, there's a book by Brian Burke. It's called Hands-Off Investor, and it is fantastic. It goes through every detail of what you would need to look at, how the models work. It makes a ton of sense. I love that book. I've had Brian on my podcast twice because he's so good. And like, he's one of the guys that I mentioned before that is just, he's been there, but he will have that conversation with you every single time. And that book is phenomenal. What is one tool you can't live without personally or in your business? So I use a tool called Feedly and what I've done. So Feedly is basically a news aggregator. At least that's how I use it is that I've, I figure out all of the streams that are important to me so I can stay up to date on what's happening, both like in, in geographic reasons, regions. So you can pull in news sources that are geographic. You can have them like topical. And I pull in news sources that are really important to me. So I can just scan a lot of times, like I can just look at what's coming through and just scan the headlines and I can see what's happening in the marketplace and what's changing at a glance. 
So every day, like I, I feel like I'm smart enough to have a really relevant conversation about real estate because I'm just seeing the stuff come in versus either trying to go find it myself or having it all pop through my email at like random times. Yeah. Feedly is a tool I use every day and I don't even think about it. If you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be? I would say I took some risk early on. And the thing that I did was I invested at levels that felt comfortable at the time. So think about like smaller properties, probably not so great neighborhoods because like I could put, I can make the numbers work. And I would have told, I would go back in time and tell myself to think bigger, find other people if you need to invest with and make that happen. Yeah. That's one of those things that, you know, one of the things that I wish I would have learned sooner is multifamily. These bigger investments are usually aspirational. We start off as single family homes as if we're playing a big game on Monopoly and we trade up to multifamily. Whereas the multifamily is achievable a lot sooner than people realize. Yes. And a lot of times you can have an operator that is way better at it than you are. They can take in, you can get the same returns and it really, it can be passive. In under 60 seconds, can you give everybody one piece of advice that they can implement today? One piece of advice that they could implement today. I'm actually going to go back and I feel like this is redundant, but like the Feedly tool is something that you can go get today and start aggregating your news sources and figuring out what's happening. You will feel so much more confident on what's happening in the real estate market and you're not going to be susceptible to the hype or because people will reach out to you or you'll be at a RIA association meeting and there'll be investment options. Like you'll actually feel really good about what you're looking to do. And I would never go back in time and take that away because that is my life source for what's happening in the market. I feel like I've got my pulse on it. You can go to feedly.com. You can grab this thing and you can just start setting it up today. And I promise it'll make a world of difference to how you feel about what's going on in the marketplace and like what's happening right now. Jake, is there a question or concept you wished we would have covered here today? Maybe just mindset. I know that's probably like cliche at this point in time, but we've hinted around at it a little bit throughout the episode. And I think that there's a tendency to one, not want to feel stupid, right? Getting in and having conversations with people about real estate investing. And then two, just like thinking small. And I think that one of the things that's been really powerful for me is using my podcast as a tool to one, educate, but two, to learn. It's forced me to have a bunch of conversations with people that I never would have had conversations with. It's allowed me to ask questions that I probably would not have asked if I was just calling somebody up and be like, hey, let's talk about this investment opportunity. Is it a good one? Like I could ask that question blindly on the podcast because it's more of an educational thing. But the point is you need to have the right mindset is that the people that you want to work with are the people that are going to want to respond to you and build this relationship. And when you find some of the right people, it does two things for you. You'll get there faster because you'll be powering with the community will help you get there faster. And a lot of times it'll put you in a situation where you can go bigger, where there's economies of scale. And just a closing off point there is that like when I was doing single family residential investing, I was paying my property manager eight to 10%, 10% generally. When you're paying a property manager on a hundred plus unit door, it's like less than 3%. There's a lot of scale and there's a lot of power that comes with going bigger. And if you can get your mind around 
not being afraid to get in there and start asking questions, you're going to develop great relationships and you're going to find yourselves in situations where you can actually work at some larger scale because you're looking at somebody across the table that's already doing it and you're like, I could do that too. So get out of your own way, start building relationships and asking questions and like the doors will open that would never have been there before. Yeah, I can't echo that enough for two reasons. One is that I don't know about you, but when it comes to the real estate investing community, I don't know of any community that I've ever been a part of that is so open and willing to answer questions. And no question is a dumb question. It's every, anybody and everyone seems to be willing to help and answer what they, if they can help. And I then secondly, totally agree. Yeah. And secondly, is that we keep talking about the, you're the sum of the five people you hang out with the most. If you want to be a successful investor, what a better way to be around those type of people is to start in, start finding those investment communities. Absolutely. And it's funny. That's like part of the intro to my podcast is that go out there and find these people, level yourself up because you are the sum of the five people that you surround yourself with. Be purposeful on who those people are. Yeah. Thanks again, Jake. Again, it is the limitedpartner.com. That will be a clickable link in the show notes but really appreciate your time here today. Thank you so much for having me. If you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing, if so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.